good, good Father. Almighty God, creator of heaven and earth, we thank you that you do. You call out to us like a good father would. Say, come to me, my children. I will give you rest. I will give you hope. So, Lord, we invite you through the beauty of your word, the power of your word to speak to us this morning, that your voice would be clear, that our hearts would be open. God, call us to yourself. Help us to know you clearly, powerfully, and that from that, God, we would be changed. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, you'll see I have my handy chair here, and uh, many of you are thinking, oh, look how cute. He's trying to be like Ron, (laughs) which would be a great thing. This actually has more to do with the fact that I've had stomach flu all week, and uh, while my stomach's feeling much better, uh, I am really weak and shaky, and so if I were to fall over at any moment, please don't give me mouth-to-mouth. Just put some gloves on, grab me by the ankles, cart me off to the side of the stage, and we'll all be good. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Have you ever thought about um, how you really view God? I mean, what do you really think about him? You know, the way that we see and understand God has such a huge impact on the way that we relate to him. I mean, think about this. What if our view of God was too small or too weak? You know, what if we viewed God kind of like a dictator or a policeman or Mr. Rogers, you know, or an old man or just a really cruel judge? Or maybe, you know, in our own personal experience, you know, our our relationship with our own earthly father was, was maybe sadly kind of harsh or abusive. How do these things affect the way that we see God? How might they affect our faith or lack of faith, right? The great uh, preacher, A.W. Tozer, said this. He said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. You see, in many ways, what we truly, honestly believe about God, it affects how we think, it affects everything that we do and how we live. And if we get it all wrong about God, if you really think about it in the end, Everything else, it just doesn't matter what we even got right. Having right thoughts about God, understanding and experience with God is the greatest battle of our lives. It truly is because as prideful and arrogant human beings, you know, with this heart, we we resist God with everything that we are. We want to make him into our image, you know, so he's more like us so that we can control him maybe or be him, (laughs) Distorted views of God is really like Satan's most vicious attack on us because what he wants to do is weaken our trust and break our reliance on God. If you think about it, this is the tactic that he used against the first man and woman, causing them to doubt and question and distrust God so that he could wrap them up in his lies and squeeze the sense right out of them. You think about how he tempted Jesus. He used the same sort of plan, trying to drive a wedge between the Father and the Son, 
by distorting Jesus' views of who God really is. See, Satan is a tempter. He's deceitful, and he's very subtle in his ways, the way he feeds these little thoughts into our heads, subtly, subtly nibbling away, nit by nit, like a little rat, until he finally can try to break the cords of faith, and they're snapped. He knows that if he can get us to doubt God and view him in the wrong way, that it breaks our faith and trust in God. And if we perceive that God doesn't care or that he's not good or that he's unrighteous in some way, then this false God of our perception is completely useless to us. The creeds penned in the early church were really purposeful. They were put there intentionally to unite and to instruct and to guard against error that started to creep into these early churches. In fact, if you survey the, the epistles, you know, the early letters that were written to the churches by the apostles, the disciples, and Paul, you'll notice that every single one of them lists uh, warnings about false teachings and false beliefs about God that had begun to enter into the church. It's so important that we get our ideas and thoughts about God from his word. And while the creeds aren't scripture, they are taken carefully from scripture as a means to put them together carefully as a synopsis of biblical faith and doctrine so that we can build a solid biblical faith, a right view of God. And so we're going to get started, and so we're going to jump in to talk about the creed. So I invite you to look in your program there and pull out your message notes, and here's our first point. As a father, God is my encourager and my security, my encourager and my security. You ever tried to describe something to someone who has no frame of reference as to what you're talking about? <laughs> my wife, um, when my kids were really small, I have two daughters, and when they were really little, Terry brought home a box of Hostess Ding Dongs. <laughs> And she pulled them out, and here are these silver hockey pucks. And she puts them in front of the girls. And she says, okay, these are ding-dongs. And the girls said, ding-dongs? And they started laughing and giggling. What's that? And they started laughing and looking at these things. And Sherry says, we should eat one. And they're like, what? Why would we eat that? And she said, they're really good. She says, there's chocolate and cake and cream filling. And I thought, we're not going to eat that. <laughs> I mean, just like this silver little, silver little thing there. And she tried to describe it and tried to help them understand what it was. And they just wouldn't budge. They're like, I don't know. <laughs> Finally, she unwrapped one. And she said, come on, just try it. And the girl bit it. Mmm, ding-dongs. <laughs> <laughs> they finally got it, right? There's an incredible dilemma for us in trying to describe so that we understand who is this almighty, ever-present, everlasting, huge, almighty God. Words just can't describe him. There's a lot we can know about God, but there's still so much that we just don't understand or relate to. And so when God describes himself to us because he wants to connect to us. He helps us with analogies, which are things from our own world, right, that we can understand and can relate to, to connect with him. God as a father is one of those. God's like an ideal father to us in all the best ways of what we think fatherhood is. Now, one thing is that God isn't male, okay? It says in Numbers twenty three nineteen, 
It tells us God's not a man, so he does not lie. He's not a human, so he does not change his mind. Has he ever spoken and failed to act? Has he ever promised and not carried it through? God is spirit. He's spirit, not human. And when God made us in his image, we know that he made us, it says, male and female. And so we see that both the male and female characteristics, the best in both of us, are what are known as the image of God. In fact, um, in the Bible, in the book of Isaiah, God is often referred to as being like a mother. Isaiah 42, 14, God is described like a mother in labor. In Isaiah 49, 15, God is described as a nursing mother who will not abandon his children. In Isaiah 66, 13, it says that God comforts his people like a mother comforting a frightened child. God uses other analogies as well, and maybe you've heard many of these, like he describes himself as a lion or a lamb, an eagle, a fortress, a light. These are all pictures that help us understand not so much God's essence, but his character. So why a father then? Well, fatherhood at its best is known for love and strength and guidance and protection. We get a lot of encouragement and security from fathers. And God believes that these are characters that he wants you to know about himself. You know, I think one of the best ways that we see the fatherhood of God displayed in front of us is in God the Father's relationship with his son, Jesus Christ, right? There are two times in the New Testament where it records where God spoke audibly, which is a crazy imaginative thing just to kind of think about. But those two times, he's speaking specifically about his son. In Matthew 3, 17, at Jesus' baptism, we hear this. God says, this is my dearly loved son, who brings me great joy. And then at the Mount of Transfiguration, which is recorded in Matthew 17, 5, the Father says of Jesus, this is my dearly loved Son, who brings me great joy. Listen to him. What incredible affirmation. This shows the deep, intimate love that exists within the Trinity. And also, if you think about it, Jesus, who came in the flesh, is a model for us of how the Father wants to interact with us. And so we can see that this is how God sees us, that we are dearly loved, and that we bring him great, great joy, which gives even greater and deeper meaning to John three sixteen, those verses where we're told that God gave his only begotten son as a sacrifice for us so that he could adopt us as his children. <laughs> Galatians 4, 4 to 6 says, But when the right time came, God sent his son, born of a woman, subject to the law. God sent him to buy freedom for us who were slaves to the law, so that he could adopt us as his very own children. And because we're his children, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, prompting us to call out, Abba. Father, Jesus described God's fatherly love to us. He wanted us so much to understand who the father is. And he did this in the story of the prodigal son. Do you remember it? Here's this prodigal son who wanders off. He he takes his father's inheritance and he squanders it on wine, women, and wanton living. Till he comes to the end of himself. And Luke 15, 20 says... And while he was still a long way off, 
his father saw him coming. Filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. And his son said to him, Father, I've sinned against both heaven and you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But his father said to the servants, Quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet. And kill the calf we've been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast. For this son of mine was dead. And now he's returned to life. He was lost, but now he's found. This is a father who believes in us, even when we don't believe in ourselves. This is a father who deeply, deeply cares about us and is committed to us. God's fatherly love is such a deep sense of security for us. Such a deep sense of wholeness and shalom that comes from the knowledge of really, truly knowing God. (laughs) And we can be sure that we're safe and secure in his hands. You remember what Jesus said in John 10, 28 and 29? (laughs) He said this, I give them eternal life. And they will never perish. No one can snatch them away from me. For my Father has given them to me. And he is more powerful than anyone else. No one can snatch them from the Father's hand. When you receive Jesus Christ. When you receive Jesus Christ as your Savior. You are adopted by God. You receive his Holy Spirit as a seal You are a recipient of eternal life. Nothing can ever take you out of the Father's hand, and there's nothing that can ever separate you from his love. So what's my response to this? To having God as my Father. (laughs) Just being practical, we really need just to spend some time soaking deeply in God's deep love. It sets such a foundation for how we do life. You know, when my girls were little, when they were small, and sometimes you can, with kids, you can kind of tell when they're antsy, you know, they just kind of out of sorts, they get a little ornery. <laughs> I'd scoop them up in my arms, right? I'd give them a little squeeze, I'd sit them on my lap, and then I'd just take their head and kind of put it into my chest, and I'd chat with them, or sing over them, and they would just settle in, and settle down. And center themselves, right? You are never too old to be God's child. Never too old to be God's child. When's the last time you just wasted time with God? When's the last time you crawled up into his lap and let him just love on you? You got a big chair somewhere? Just go sit in that big chair and read through the Psalms and let the words of his love just fill your soul. Next. I'm secure in my faith when I believe that as almighty, God is powerful and reliable. God is powerful and reliable. The next description that God is almighty means that God has all might. All might. He's all powerful to achieve his purposes. Nothing limits him except his own character and essence. He's always consistent with who he is because he's true, he's holy, and God is perfect. And having a heavenly father who wants to love, guide, and protect us, well, it's good to know 
that he is powerful enough to do the job, right? Jeremiah 32, 17 says, Ah, sovereign Lord, you've made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. God's almighty power includes the fact that he is self-existent and self-sufficient. God has always existed. He's completely sufficient within himself. The great philosopher Aristotle said, God is the first cause, the eternal being who causes all things to exist, but who himself is uncaused or uncreated. God doesn't need anything from us. And yet we can't take our next breath without him. Acts 17, 28 says that in him, we live and move and breathe and have our being. Colossians 1, 17 says he existed before anything else. And in him, all things hold together. See, God didn't just create and leave. All things hold together in him. The power of God also includes his immutability, the fact that God doesn't change. He can't go from being perfect to imperfect, from being loving to unloving, from being just to unjust. Our God is the same yesterday, today, and yes, forever. James 1.17 reminds us, whatever's good and perfect comes down to us from God our Father, who created all the lights in heaven. He never casts changes. He never changes or casts a shifting shadow. So this makes God reliable and consistent. And his love and his justice work in perfect harmony. His grace and his law combine in righteousness. His wonder and knowledge and power have no bounds. You know, contemplating this wonder of God. King David said this in 1 Chronicles 29, 10, and 11. David said, Praise be to you, O Lord, God of our father Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor for everything in heaven and earth is yours. Yours, O Lord, is the kingdom and you are exalted head over all. God's power is something we can trust in. We can trust him to do things for us, in us, and even through us. He's worthy of our trust and our confidence because he's able to do immeasurably more than we can ever ask or even think. He's our great God. Now, all this being true, right? I know that in our personal life experience, this question bubbles up. Well, if God's all-powerful, why? Why am I going through this difficulty in my life? Why this pain? And that's a good question, right? People have been asking that question for a very, very, very long time. I mean, Job, one of the very first people in the Bible, asked that question. Well, we know that one, God doesn't cause pain and evil. We also know that God gives human beings the gift of free will. We know that we live in a broken world. And we know that pain and suffering are only temporary. And we also know that if God were to eliminate the causes of hurt, pain, and evil in our world, then he'd have to eliminate us too, right? <laughs> and yet all these answers seem to still come up short. 
Well, here's what I see in the Bible. The Bible never whitewashes the issue of pain and suffering. In fact, as I survey in my head every biblical character I can think of, they all went through times of hurt and pain and sorrow and suffering. And yet, God used all of it. And sometimes it was the pain that built the foundation of even deeper, meaningful faith and trust in God. I believe what the Bible says, that God is all-powerful. I also believe that nothing happens outside of his sovereignty. And I also believe that God works all things, even the hard, ugly, painful things for our good, even though we may not fully understand it on this side of heaven. God's power is the power to change and transform lives, to bring beauty from ashes, to free the captive, to give hope to the hopeless. God's power turned Daniel from a lion's lunch, a lion's dinner, to a kingdom winner. He turned a humble girl to the mother of the Savior of the world. His power sends lepers leaping. It brings light to the blind. It sets prisoners free, and it parts the sea. His power made a wee man a free man. It made a tax-collecting crook into the man of the book. It gave the adulteress a new address, and it made this selfish turd into a man who can teach his word. And all that I can say is amen. <laughs> Isaiah 40, 28 to 31 says this. Have you never heard? Have you never understood? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of all the earth. He never grows weak or weary. No one can measure the depths of his understanding. He gives power to the weak and strength to the powerless. Even youths will become weak and tired, and even young men will fall in exhaustion. But those who trust in the Lord will find new strength. They will soar like wings on ingles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not faint. And so what is my response to a God who is almighty? It is to trust him and to release control. You know, the funny thing about how we release God's power in our life, you know, we figure that we got to do more got to get our spiritual act together. <laughs> but the key actually is to release and to trust and to let God be God. There's a big difference between giving up and letting go. We need to trust God with the throne of our life. We need to put him first. And trusting God is not a leap into the dark. It's stepping into the light. And last, I'm secure in my faith when I believe that as creator, God is my author and my owner. God is our creator. Now we say that, but do we really think about what that means? <laughs> the depth of what that means, that God is the creator of the heaven and earth? When we open our Bible, the very first words that jump out at the page in Genesis 1-1 are, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God spoke a word, 
and trillions upon trillions of stars and planets and universes appeared (laughs) in the very first words of his revelation to us. God wants us to know clearly, one, he is the source of all life, and that two, we, the crown of his creation, are made in his image. He gathered the dust. He formed and shaped it intentionally, drew a breath, and breathed his life into us. (laughs) The creation story is remarkable. There's a little boy who heard this story for the first time in Sunday school. He was especially fascinated by the idea that, that Eve was made from Adam's rib. So later that night at home with his mom, his mom walked in and he was lying on his bed and looking like he was ill. And his mom said to him, Johnny, what's the matter? And little Johnny replied, I have a pain in my side. I think I'm going to have a wife. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. Being made in the image of God. Being made in the image of God gives us incredible worth and purpose and meaning. Ephesians 2.10 says that we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. You are God's Picasso. You are his Rembrandt, his Mona Lisa. You are a true work of art, aren't you? And as I mentioned earlier, how we view God is so important, but also how we view ourselves is important and shapes our life. The way we see ourselves, who we are, and whose we are, and what we're designed for. It sets a course for how we live. And God says that you are his masterpiece, and that he created you for a special purpose from long ago, uniquely designed for you. Have you thought about that? Another translation says that we are God's workmanship, which means that the works of what he has made, which refers to the idea of ownership. We are made by God for God. He's our creator. He's our owner. Oh, (laughs) we don't like that word. Our flesh doesn't like that statement at all. You know, it's been said that some of the greatest inventions ever made, they are attributed to wonderful, great people, but many of them were actually stolen ideas, like the telescope, the sewing machine, the radio and television were all originally created and thought for by someone whose idea was taken, and they never got the full credit. And that's not unlike our life and life in our universe. You see, God is the author and the creator of all things. And yet his own creation tries to steal the credit and give it to something else or someone else. The most popular theory is that the universe was created by mere chance, random selection, or even space aliens. The madness of this is almost comical. And the arrogance of created man to deny his maker and attribute godlike qualities to non-existent nonsense is almost damnable. Creation is 
permeated with intelligence, with order, with design, with information, with complex systems that all scream out that they're created by an all-wise, all-knowing, all-existent, almighty God. Romans 1.20 says, For ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and the sky. Through everything God made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power, and his divine nature. So they have no excuse for not knowing God. The whole issue of origins, really, it's not a mind issue. It's really more about a heart issue. A darkened heart leads to a darkened mind. And the reason that so many people refuse to acknowledge the obvious is that to acknowledge that there's a creator is to admit being created. And therefore, to have a moral obligation to that creator. And people don't want God because that means they'd have to be accountable to him. Psalm 103 says, know that the Lord himself is God. It is he who has made us and we not ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Our response to the fact that we've been created in God's image ought to be more like Nehemiah, who led his people into repentance and revival as they sought to glorify the God of the universe. Nehemiah 9.6 says, You alone are the Lord. You made the skies and the heavens and all the stars. You made the earth and the seas and everything in them. You preserve them all, and all the angels of heaven worship you. You see, the angels and the heavens and all creation bows in submission to its creator. All of it, except for the human heart who God uniquely designed and created in his image to be in community with, to love. And that's why we need God to change our heart. That's why we need a savior. And when we do submit our heart and life to Jesus Christ as our savior, we can never forget that we are not our own. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 to 20 reminds us of this. Don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? You do not belong to yourself. For God bought you with a high price. So you must honor God with your body. It's the default of our human nature to put self first, right? And to push God and everyone else behind us. And we need to recognize this soberly within ourselves and repent and turn to God and submit ourselves to him. And so our response to God as our creator, the best response is to view myself as God's treasure and surrender myself to him. Surrender. My life is yours, Lord. Forgive me, God, for living for myself. Instead of allowing your life to flow through me, God, please change me, mold me, break me, renew me, and make me into the person you want me to be, the person you designed me to be. That's a prayer that needs to resonate and echo in our heart and reverberate from our lips. We're God's workmanship, His masterpiece. We are created for a purpose. And that should be the greatest quest of our life to fulfill that purpose and live the adventure that God has laid out for us. I believe in God the Father, almighty maker of heaven and earth. 
the Christian faith is an expression of our belief and trust and eternal hope in God. And we know, first of all, that God is a loving Father, that He is almighty and powerful and limitless in His greatness and His glory, and that our Heavenly Father is the creator of the heavens and the earth, which is why we owe Him our greatest praise, our deepest devotion, and a life lived fully for Him and in Him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you are our Father, that you love us. God, we do. We surrender our life to you. You are all-powerful, almighty God. Help our eyes and our understanding and our heart to enlarge our view of you and understand who you are. And in the magnitude of understanding who you are, appreciate to a deeper level what it means to be forgiven by you, what it means to be your child. Lord, for those of us who don't know you personally, help them to see you clearly and hear your voice calling to them, come to me, come home. We're grateful, God, for all that you've done for us. In Jesus' name, amen.